0: to be with you all this evening, this uh, mid-September in Miami, as I feel like the weather is slowly changing for the better. Nothing can get as bad as July. Can I get an amen? amen. It, was, it was tough, but we're moving. We're marching to mid-November. For those of you that have just moved to the city, you're like, what did I do? Did I make a mistake? No. Wait two months. You're about to enter into the glory days of mid-November through April, okay? Okay. Hold on. If I have not had the privilege of meeting you, my name is Carter. I'm the lead pastor here at Crossbridge. And we started a new series a few weeks back entitled, as you saw on the bumper video, Heaven in the Streets. Now, this series is being preached at 16 different churches in three different countries. We are partnering, as Pastor Johnny said, together across over 100 projects, over, I think it's 14 cities. So many different churches were partnering to show the love of Jesus and show kindness to cities all over this world. And we decided to walk through the book of Isaiah to lead us and point us to Serve Week. Serve Week is the culmination of this series. I want to give another plug, as Pastor Johnny said, please register, take those cards, invite people. It's also, to one of the things that uh, we've been mentioning Some of the projects have a certain amount of people. So you may think, I want to do the verb kind, as he shared tonight. And there's a certain amount of people that they can take. So sign up before the spots get taken for all the different serve projects. We hope you'll partner. But the reason that we have decided to label this sermon series, Heaven in the Streets, and go through the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament is because Isaiah is speaking about the type of people we are to be. How we are to live our faith In life, the type of worship we are to have, the type of support we can find from God in the midst of difficulties, and how we are to show love to people even when we are in a place of pain or difficulty. And this evening is no different. The title of the sermon this evening for episode three of our series is Biblical Justice. Biblical Justice, a major theme in the book of Isaiah and all throughout the Bible. Now, when I speak about biblical justice, I do not mean what has been kind of co-opted as a you know common term in our culture, social justice. I don't mean that. I also do not mean the injustice of Netflix raising the prices every month. Anyone else feel me? Every single time I get the alert, it's more money. What's going on? The promise years ago, friends, if you remember that we're gonna cut the cord, no more cable, it's gonna be cheaper. It's not. I don't know what's going on. There's a thousand streaming services. We've got to get this under control. It's an injustice. I agree, but it's not what we're talking about. We're talking about biblical justice. And I believe that this message tonight that comes out of Isaiah chapter 42 is a big one. It is an important one. And so here's what I'm asking you to do, okay? I'm asking you to prepare your mind and your heart to engage, Maybe you had a rough week, you you barely made it to church, it was kind of overcast, you thought about, I don't know if I want to make it or not, maybe I'll join online. For those of you online, perk up, get some more coffee, let's engage, because this is a really important topic. It is a popular theme and conversation in our world, and we need people that understand what biblical justice is. And so if you have notes, iPad, you have your phone, you have a notebook with you, pull it out. Click on the notes icon and let's engage together. This is not meant to be a monologue. This is a dialogue as you engage God's Word with me, as I've had the privilege of doing all week. And so as I mentioned, we are in Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah has been speaking, as I alluded to last week, for the first 39 chapters, calling God's people to repent. He's been telling them to change their ways. They Stop worshiping God alone. They were worshiping these other gods. They were not living out their faith in their life. They were doing the religious thing, but their hearts were so far from God. They did not listen, and so they faced exile. The Babylonians came in. They took God's people out of Jerusalem, out of Israel, and put them in exile in Babylon. Now, while they are in Babylon, in chapter 40, Isaiah, who is a prophet of God, speaking for God to God's people tells them that god has pardoned their sins that god is still with them he will not forsake them he loves them and he says that when they wait on the lord and when they recognize their weakness they will see god make them strong it's this call to humility this call to waiting on god who will give them power in the midst of their difficulty and will give them his presence As they're in a very tumultuous, difficult situation, being in exile. In chapter 41, it goes a step further. In chapter 41, Isaiah is speaking to God's people and he says, not only has God come to support you in your present need with his presence and with his power, there's also a very near future promise that is going to come to fruition that is going to bring liberation to you. In chapter 41 of Isaiah, Isaiah prophesies that God is going to raise up a leader who will come and destroy the Babylonians, will conquer them, will be favorable to God's people and allow them back into the land of Israel, to Jerusalem, to rebuild the city and the temple. Now, we know historically that this is exactly what happened Isaiah was prophesying of King Cyrus from Persia who came in and conquered the Babylonians and was favorable to God's people and allowed them back into Jerusalem to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and the city and the temple. And then in chapter 42, after they are just overjoyed that not only is God supporting them in their need, but there's a very near future liberation coming, there's a shift To a distant future, to a future hope where the Messiah King, the prophesied Savior, will come. So, after God has supported them in their need with His presence and with power, and He has promised them that there will be a future liberation, He then directs their attention to the distant future, a future hope. Isaiah chapter 42, the first four verses, is what's called a servant song. Now, In Isaiah, there are four servant songs where Isaiah, the mouthpiece of God, is prophesying of this future Messiah, giving this future hope. And the language here is very exalted. There's an anticipation and a joy. And God's people are able to receive this and be comforted by God's future plans for his people. And so, Isaiah chapter 42 is the very first servant song in the book of Isaiah, and here's what it says. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud, or lift up his voice, or make it heard in the street." A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When you read this, what jumps off the pages is this servant that is being spoken about. Who is this servant? Well, there's a couple key characteristics that come out here in Isaiah chapter 42 that are prophesying who this servant will be. He's chosen by God the Father. He will have the Spirit of God upon him, and he will have a mission, and his mission will be to establish justice, and he is one in whom God delights, this is the servant. Now, the very first book of the New Testament, Matthew, when he writes his gospel, he draws from this chapter. And he says, this servant that Isaiah was prophesying is, guess who, who's the answer? Jesus. As I said, it's the answer in church, friends. It's Jesus. In Matthew chapter 3, where we see Jesus' baptism. Notice the language. Are you ready? Here's the language in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, Jesus' baptism. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Jesus is the chosen one. He is the one on whom the Spirit of God rests. And he is the one in whom God the Father is well pleased, who God delights in. See, Matthew is saying that Jesus is the fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah chapter 42. He is the servant, the prophesied Messiah King, the promised Savior, that is who. Jesus is. And the Messiah, Jesus, has a mission. His mission is to bring forth justice. That's his mission. Jesus, throughout his life and ministry, is making things that are wrong right. He's taking brokenness and he's healing it. He, has, he ultimately culminates his public ministry in the cross where he dies for the sins of God's people, for you and for me, so that we might be made right with God. He satisfies God's justice because sin deserves death. And so Jesus, the one in whom God the Father delights, who has the Spirit of God upon him, who is chosen, that servant, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, dies to satisfy justice to make what is wrong right. This is Jesus's mission. In fact, it's Jesus's promise of what he will ultimately do. He will make everything wrong right. Everything, as J.R.R. Tolkien says, that is sad will come untrue. That is Jesus's mission. But as we're about to step into talking about biblical justice and what it looks like in scripture, I want to define first what is justice. So we're all kind of tracking together. I googled Webster Dictionary, okay? Here's Webster's Dictionary, what justice is. Ready? Merited rewards or punishment, so it's you get what you deserve, blessing or curse, depending on your actions. It is the quality of being fair or impartial, and it is conformity to the truth or reason. Because the truth is not impartial. The truth is not unfair. It is true. There is a, a Scottish-American philosopher by the name of Alasdair MacIntyre. And he says that underneath everyone's opinion or belief around what is justice, there's a set of philosophical beliefs that you hold. So when you want to define what is right, what is impartial, what is fair, what is true... There's a set of beliefs that you hold to. There's justice beliefs. Here they are. You have beliefs about human nature, human purpose, morality, and practical rationality. What he means by practical rationality is the way in which you justify something being true. So for Christians, we justify what is true by Scripture. Human reason, human nature, human purpose... Morality and practical rationality. And over the course of human history, there's been different positions on what is just and what is right and what is true. There's four main ones. I'm going to get a little nerdy, but I, I want to track with me here. The very far back, 2000 so years ago, there's classical tradition on justice. This was Homer and Aristotle. And from Homer and Aristotle, this classical tradition on justice comes the next wave, which is biblical justice. We see this by Aquinas and Augustine. This does not mean that biblical justice didn't exist prior. It just comes into the forefront of really sweeping the world and being a prevailing and predominant view on what is just. From there, we see the enlightenment with David Hume and John Locke, and then we arrive where we are today, our modern position on justice where there really isn't one person that is winning the day there's a bunch of competing views on what is just and what is right and what is true now this is important for you to understand because we are a byproduct our culture is a byproduct of the enlightenment age of the enlightenment position on justice and here's what the enlightenment said that you are going to define justice and truth and absolutes not from God, but from human reason, that you need to be able to reason and rationalize yourself to what is true and what is good and what is just. Now, David Hume, who was the leading philosopher that kind of won the day in the Enlightenment, he said this. Tell me if this sounds familiar. He said that you cannot, as a person, reason yourself to what is true and what is just You do not have that capacity within you. Therefore, you must follow what you feel is true and be obedient to that. Sound familiar? No one has a stake on absolute truth or what is right or good. Therefore, you must be obedient to what you feel is true. And if you follow that, then it's just. That is what we find as the overarching theme of our culture today. Now, biblical justice has been established in God's Word since the very beginning. We see it all throughout the Old Testament. We're going to see it here tonight in Isaiah 42. We see it all throughout the New Testament. We see it in Jesus's life and ministry. We see it in the apostles. We see it in the church for 2,000 years. But here's what I have seen. I think biblical justice is losing its footing in our culture. And it's predominantly because many of us in the church, those of us that believe in Jesus and follow Jesus, we don't know how to define what the Bible says is just and right and good. We don't know. And because we don't know, we are influenced by whatever the prevailing predominant narrative is. And so we give up ground on what the Bible says human nature is, human purpose, morality, and how we define what is true is by God's Word. So I want to do two things tonight, okay? You're with me? Two things. One, what is biblical justice? Two, really important second question, how do you carry it out? What is biblical justice, and how do you carry out biblical justice? Now, I think there are five overarching tenets that we see from Scripture on what is right and good, on what is just and i want to define each of these the first one of what is the tenet of biblical justice is radical generosity this is a tenant seen all throughout scripture of what is right and good here's how i lay it out because all that i have is from god i must steward my blessings to bless others That I am empowered by God's grace to be gracious to other people. Everything in my life, everything I have, my time, my talent, my treasure, my career, my opportunities, everything I have is from God. It is a gift coming down from the Father of lights, as Peter says. And therefore, I must steward everything I have, not just for myself, but to bless others. I'm to be radically generous. Bruce Waltke, who is a a professor and theologian, he's probably, arguably, the leading theologian in the world in the book of Proverbs, the book of wisdom. I had the great honor of sitting under him in seminary. It was unbelievable. I had to, like, drink a lot of coffee so I could focus as he was talking each time because very smart. He says that when you read the book of Proverbs, it's always talking about the righteous. And when you read the book of Proverbs, you want to be the righteous, Okay, not the wicked. So you want to be righteous, not wicked. And he says that you could boil down everything in the book of Proverbs to one concise statement about who the righteous are. Ready for what he says? The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. The righteous are people that are willing to disadvantage themselves to bless others. They will steward all that they have to be radically generous for other people, while the wicked will be radically stingy. They will disadvantage other people and not care if it benefits them. There's this law in the Old Testament that makes this very clear. There's a law in the Old Testament where when you're running a business, say you're harvesting crops as an example, you are not allowed to maximize profits. You have to leave a portion of your crops unharvested for the poor and disadvantaged in your community. And you have to allow them to come on your property and take whatever they need to supply for their own needs. Can you imagine? You're not allowed to maximize profits. You have to support the community through your business and allow them to freely come and take. It's amazing. Biblical justice is radically generous, and it's not looking for a payback. It's not, I'll be generous, but don't forget. Secondly, biblical justice upholds the image of God. Everyone must be treated with equal dignity and respect because they are made in the image of God. Everyone. It means that You fight for people to be treated with dignity and respect regardless of their social status, regardless of their financial position, regardless of their race or their culture, regardless of what skills they have or they do not have. You fight to protect and to uphold the dignity of every person because every person is made in the image of God every person. People are not a utility. And this truth goes much deeper than you might imagine on the surface. I was considering a few ways in which upholding and fighting for the image of God may come to bear in in our lives. Here's an example. Consider unfair business practices. We've got a lot of businessmen and women in the room. To cut corners and to give an inferior product in order to make money is an injustice. To give less effort than you put on your timesheet or you try to convince your boss is an injustice. Why? It's an injustice because you are disrespecting the image of God in people. You're disrespecting the people that you work alongside. You are disrespecting the people that consume the product expecting one thing and are delivered another. You're not caring for their dignity. Consider engaging people of different beliefs or opinions. To shout truth without empathy or sensitivity is not only unloving, it is unjust. It is unjust, for they are deserving of dignity. That does not mean that you you cannot disagree with someone. It does not mean that you cannot debate someone. It does not mean that you can hold to a different conviction and share that conviction with someone else, but it does mean that it matters how you share it. It matters your agenda in sharing it. It matters your tone in sharing it, your posture. It matters because biblical justice fights to uphold the dignity of all people and to show them respect. Thirdly, communal responsibility. I want you to think about this. Sin and brokenness extends beyond the individual and his or her responsibility. Sin and brokenness extends beyond the individual, meaning our mistakes that we make in life, the mistakes I make in life, they do not only shape me, they shape the people around me. So that means sin and brokenness, especially perpetual, habitual sin, it creates sinful patterns that not only affect me, but they affect other people around me. Sin reproduces sin. Brokenness reproduces brokenness. An example of this in scripture is in Joshua chapter 7. You have this man by the name of Achan who goes and steals what's called the devoted things. These are things that are devoted to the worship of God. And he steals them for his own benefit. Maybe to sell them off and make some money. Now when he is found out He is not only commanded to confess and repent, but his entire family, they didn't do anything. They didn't steal anything, but they're not left off the hook. Why? Because Achan is not only responsible himself for what he's done, he's also a byproduct of his family. And his family has to take responsibility for the environment, the patterns, the things that were affected upon him. That may have led him to that decision. So they have to repent as well. It's a startling story. Sin and brokenness is reproduced. And our own sin creates patterns and it affects other people. We're all caught up in it. Biblical justice has a communal focus and responsibility. Which means we are to own the brokenness of our community and our city. Because we have played a role in it. All of us. Fourth, individual responsibility. Biblical justice also upholds individual responsibility. That is, this I am responsible for my sins, but not all my outcomes. I am responsible for my sins, but not all my outcomes. The Bible does not teach karma, it does not teach that you put out good in the world to get good back, it does not teach bootstrap success, where you just God helps those who help themselves. You just got to be more disciplined and better. It doesn't teach that. Your individual choices and character does not always equal your outcomes. Let me give you an example. Your financial situation in life may possibly be due to your decisions. You could have made some poor decisions, some ill-advised decisions, squandered some money, and it have, has left you in a position where you're financially struggling. Your decisions has a, have affected your outcome. However, your financial situation may be due to external factors that you cannot control. A pandemic, ec- economic crash, a sickness, lack of opportunity. What this means is, you are indeed the product of your environment, all of us are the product of our environment, and the sinful patterns of this world, but, and here's the but, it's really important, we can resist and fight against the temptations and brokenness of this world. We are not powerless. We are a product of the sinful patterns of this world. We are a product of the brokenness of this world. We are affected by our environment. And those things can bear outcomes on our lives. However, we are responsible for ourselves. And we can, by the power of the Spirit, not through our own ability, but through the power of the Spirit, we can resist temptation. We can fight against evil. We can ask the Lord to rise up good and righteousness within us. And so we are responsible for our actions, for our decisions. Biblical justice calls the individual To own their own brokenness and sin to recognize it not put it on someone else but to own it for yourself and then lastly fifth a heart for the margins you cannot escape the reality in scripture that God's people are to care for the poor and powerless you cannot escape it I'm just gonna read a couple scriptures ready Psalm 41 blessed is the one who considers the poor In the day of trouble, the Lord delivers him. Proverbs 31, 8 through 9. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. Jeremiah 22, 3. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness, and deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Biblical justice is concerned for people who cannot protect themselves. It is concerned for people who are mistreated and overlooked. It is concerned with giving a voice to the voiceless. Biblical justice has a heart for people in the margins or people who are marginalized. You cannot escape that. It's a brief snapshot. Of biblical justice there's so much more we could say but i don't want to keep you here until next sunday okay but the second question is really important that's a snapshot of biblical justice the radical generosity the very first tenet actually leads you to the rest the image of god and people communal responsibility individual responsibility a heart for the margins but here's the question how Is biblical justice carried out how's it carried out well if you look at conquerors and rulers throughout history how do they carry out their version of justice remember everyone has a position on what is right and good and therefore what is just because of their view of human nature human purpose their their view of morality and how they reason their truth well, the way, historically, that conquerors and rulers established justice is what? They smash, and they rebuild. They come in with an army with power, and they smash down the oppositions and the strongholds, and then they rebuild their version of a right and good and just society or civilization. We've seen it all throughout history. But we don't only really see it in regimes we also see it in our world today. Some of you maybe have experienced this. A new CEO or new leadership comes into your company. They have a vision and a belief of what is right and good based upon their view of human nature and human purpose and morality and practical rationality. And they come in and they see aspects of the company, maybe people within the company that are opposing what they want to build. And so they smash it down, And rebuilt with power and influence. In our culture, it's the same thing. There is an opinion of what is right and good. And the way in which to establish that opinion and to create justice is to smash down the opposition that disagrees with that opinion based upon their beliefs or your beliefs of human nature, purpose, morality, and practical rationality. And use influence to keep the other dissenting opinions at bay. Smash it down and rebuild. And this can happen too in the church. It's caused a lot of hurt. Maybe different motives, but a similar mentality. A new pastor can come into a church, to a community. They have their opinions on what is right and just and good and how the church needs to operate. And there are strongholds or opposition. And so the easy thing to do the, maybe the logical thing that it feels to do is to smash it down, to tear it down, and to rebuild the church in the way that is right and good. It cause a lot of hurt. Smash and rebuild. And I, I want to be honest. I relate with that. Do you? I, I mean, if you have a convicted belief on what is true and good, if you're here and you believe in Jesus Christ, you're a follower of God. And you have your view of human nature and human purpose and morality and practical rationality, meaning how you justify your beliefs, is from the Bible. And you believe, as I do, that the Bible is the word of God and is authoritative over our lives. And this is a a, a convicted held belief. And then you experience or you encounter an opposing belief, whether in, in a friend group, in your work, in the city, in the culture. Everything within you wants to do what? Destroy it and rebuild. You see, we believe that injustice needs to be dismantled. And we believe that Jesus has promised that he is going to build and establish through the church and finally at his return, the new heavens and new earth where... There is no longer injustice. Where there is no mourning, there is no tears, there is no pain. There is no division. This is Jesus' promise to make all things new. It is our future hope. But the question that we have to wrestle with is as we are in this in-between time, we the church called to be ambassadors for Christ, called to uphold biblical justice and to strive for justice, how do we carry it out? Is it by smashing and rebuilding? How do I carry out radical generosity? How do I fight for the image of God in all people? How do I own communal responsibility? Have I taken individual responsibility? Do I have a heart for the margins? How do I follow these questions and uphold biblical justice? How do I carry it out? Here's the key. Ready? Verse 2 and 3 from Isaiah 42. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice the messiah king the servant sung about here in isaiah 42 jesus christ himself will not it says cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street here's the idea jesus will not clamor for attention he will have humble boldness he will not be loud and abrasive. Rather, we look at Jesus' ministry and he's walking alongside the people that nobody else wanted to walk with. He's in small towns, he's in communities, and he speaks the truth boldly, but there is a humility and a gentleness about Jesus. He is not self serving and loud to be loud. It's a different path. Verse 3 connects exactly with that. It says that a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Friends, this is profound. Look at this. Jesus will not even break a bruised reed. Here's what that means. You have like a reed, you know, like on, on the side of like a river bank and it's bruised, like it's gonna die. It's falling over. It's bending. Jesus in his ministry to bring forth justice will not break it off because it's no longer of use anymore the idea is that instead of breaking it off he's going to support it so that it will grow straight once again a smoldering wick speaking about there he will not quench a a little flame that is barely hanging on he's not going to blow it out and start over he's going to establish that wick and maybe raise it up in the oil a little bit so it can burn bright once again do you see what is being said? This is how he will faithfully establish justice. The way to carry out biblical justice. Ready? You ready? God's answer to oppression is not more oppression. God's answer to arrogance is not more arrogance. Rather it is in quietness and simplicity through a servant, through support Through patience, that God will rip out the evil of this world and establish justice. Supporting the bruised reed to grow straight once again. Not blowing out the faintly burning wick, but establishing it so it can burn bright once again. It is a humble roar. This is the power. Heaven in the streets, not the comment section of a triggering tweet. That is how it is established through a people that are radically generous, that are deeply holding to the image of God in all people, that have accepted communal and individual responsibility for brokenness, that have a heart for people in the margins. And all of this is carried out with a spirit of love. And here's the thing I love. About that conversation about carrying out all of these things in love, bringing forth justice with love, is that we do not get to define what love is. Here's love, are you ready? It's patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That is power, friends. Not smashing and rebuilding. Supporting the bruised reed to grow straight once again, not breaking it off. Establishing the wick to burn bright once again, not blowing it out. What we need is a church with people that are less heat and more light. More love. I wrote it like this, biblical justice is carried out in a quiet roar of humble, bold people who understand biblical justice and find their power not in their own strength, but love and a future hope. You see, God here in Isaiah, through the prophet prophet Isaiah, speaks to his people and he gives them this future hope so that they might carry out justice in their lives as they go back to the land and rebuild Jerusalem, that this future hope would be rooted in their minds, in their heart, and we have a future hope too, friends. That the brokenness and injustice of this world, it may break and it should break our heart, but it does not destroy our spirit. Look at verse 4 says. He, this is Jesus, will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. Jesus will establish justice. He will. Our hearts break for injustice, but our spirits rise with hope because victory is not in our hands. We get to be a part of God's project of redeeming this earth and making all things new but victory ultimately is not in our hands and so we have nothing to fear we can be a people of praise and joy with humble boldness carrying out biblical justice with love being radically generous upholding the image of god in all people having a communal mindset where we care about the brokenness of our city and our community we can accept individual responsibility we don't have to be prideful and we can have a heart for people in the margins and carry it out with the power of love a quiet roar you see exactly what happens when you hold on to this future hope and you know that you get to be a part of that but ultimately jesus wins and he establishes justice and he has promised that he will not grow faint or weary until he has done this it erupts within you praise praising god we are not destroyed We are victorious. Sometimes we act destroyed. We're not. We are a victorious people. Look what happens in Isaiah. I'm going to close with this. There's a hymn of praise after Isaiah says this servant song about Jesus, the promised Messiah. It says the following. Verse 10, 11, and 12. It's not on the screen, so just listen. It says that we are to sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fill it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, all people. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. The villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them who shout from the top of the mountains. Let them all give glory to God and declare his praise in the coastlands. Friends, we are to praise God in every season. Our hearts break for injustice, but our spirit rises with hope because Jesus will establish justice on the earth. We get to be a part of it. We're to follow his model and his mission by being people of love, people of praise, people of victory, with humble boldness, seeing Jesus use us in this life and in this city and in this community and in this culture and in this church for his name and for his glory. And so we praise him even in the midst of brokenness because we know the end of the story. Amen.